And if you've got a Bible, you can grab it and find your way right there where Angela is reading from, Exodus chapter 19. That's where we are going to be this morning. Most of you guys know this, that uh, Tennessee is not my uh, first home. I grew up in Bartow County, Georgia. The county seat is Cartersville. And in uh, the running community, my name still carries a little bit of weight in that region. And so when we were down there over spring break, a uh, little running club asked me to come by, a little kids running club, come by and give a little quick talk to the kids and to uh, their parents. And so I did that. And, and when I did, I, I gave them four essentials that relate to running, but also just in general, like any sport, uh, parenting, school, work, um, church. And so I, I, I told him, I was like, here's, here's four essentials for running and, and for parenting. Number one, um, be coachable. Be coachable. Right? Be teachable. Receive instruction from those who know more than you. Listen. People are for, for your good. So be coachable. Second thing is be a great teammate. So I told him, be a great teammate. C- celebrate the successes of others. Cheer for others. That's a good thing. The third thing I told him is be tough. Uh, work hard. Do your absolute best. Not everybody's going to be able to run at the same speed, but everybody can put forth the same level of effort and be tough in that. And then fourth, and I know this will come as a shock to some of you, and you may say that this is heretical, but with running, yes, number four, have fun. Have fun. I was talking to John afterwards. He's like, that was heresy you preached this morning. You said running was fun. I was like, man, it is. Get those endorphins, whatnot. But I told him, have fun. Like, quit, cheer for one another, have fun. So these four just basics that relate to anything that you're going to be involved with, four essentials. In a very similar vein, as we come to Exodus 19 today, we are going to have five essentials that we need to understand as followers of Christ. Essentials not just for understanding the Old Testament, but also the entire Bible. Essentials that we have to understand. And particularly because like where we're at in Exodus 19. Right? We're going to have fire on the mountain today. Next week, chapter 20, that's the Ten Commandments. So we are like right in the heart of the Old Testament. And so this week as we look at Exodus 19, there are some essentials we have got to understand so that when we get into chapter 20 in the giving of God's law, the summary, the Ten Commandments are a summary of it, so that we don't misunderstand God's law. If we don't understand these essentials that we're going to talk about today, we can very easily misunderstand the purpose of God's law. And so next week, we'll be looking at the law, the summary, Ten Commandments, 30,000 foot view, but today we've got to get these essentials. And chapter 19 lays out five for us. And so what we're going to do to get started, I'm going to read chapter 19 in full because we're going to be looking at a lot of high-level things from that. But the main few verses we'll be looking at are what Angela read, verses 4 through 6. But let's get the whole thing in mind just to begin with. On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain, while Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel. Jacob and Israel are synonyms. Okay? And here's what you're to tell them. <clears throat> you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, 
how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. So three things right there. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So, Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. And all the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. Okay, now, famous last words, right? You ever read the Old Testament? Yeah, they didn't exactly do them. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak with you and may also believe you forever. When Moses told the words of the people to the Lord, the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. For on the third day the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people and you shall set limits for the people all around saying, Take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot like with an arrow. Whether beast or man, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds a long, a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. And so Moses went down from the mountain to the people. Moses is going up and down, up and down, up and down, getting this workout. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and consecrated the people, and they washed their garments. And he said to the people, be ready for the third day. Do not go near a woman, i.e. like we're, we're going to do some things that aren't normal. We're going to take a bath, we're going to wash our clothes, and we're going to abstain from sex for a few days. Verse 16, on the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. This is the fire on the mountain part. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke and God answered him in thunder. And the Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain and Moses went up. And the Lord said to Moses, go down and warn the people lest they break through to the Lord to look. And many of them perish. Also, let the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves lest the Lord break out against them. And Moses said to the Lord, the people cannot come up to Mount Sinai for you yourself warned us, saying, set limits around the nation and, con and, and consecrate it. And the Lord said to him, go down. And come up bringing Aaron with you. But do not let the priests and the people break through to come up to the Lord, lest he break out against them. And so Moses went down to the people and told them. And so the very first essential that pops off the page at us on this, number one in your notes, is that communing with God is serious business. Communing with God is serious business. I mean, this is what all the thunder and the lightning and the smoke and the fire on the mountain is all about. This is why they have to consecrate themselves. It is serious business to commune with the omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent, holy, 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 
almighty God. It is serious business. Like, yes, praise God that, you know, what a friend we have in Jesus, but that does not mean that we come to Him flippantly. Jesus is not your homeboy. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, worthy of your respect and adoration and not flippancy. Now, like the Israelites here, His immense power and holiness should fill us with reverential fear and trembling. He is truly awful, full of awe. His voice is a thunder. And He has the right and the power to do whatever the heck He wants. And clay can't talk back to the potter. He is God and there is no other. Completely separate. And communing with Him is serious business. And so don't come flippantly when you come to the Lord in prayer. You are talking to the Lord of hosts. You're talking to the God of Mount Sinai. When you come to prayer, I mean, like Aslan, He's not a tame lion. He is good. And so that's the first essential we need to be reminded of in this text. Communion with God is serious business, all right? Number two, all right, second essential, and part of what the first one also shows is that, number two, the law is a big deal. The law is a big deal. Like, God's spoken with Moses repeatedly throughout Exodus. Right? They've talked back and forth, back and forth. But here, part of the reason for all the smoke and the lightning and the thunder and the fire on the mountain is to highlight what's about to happen. Because what is about to happen is we are about to get the law. The Lord is about to give the law. Chapter 20, we get the Ten Commandments, we get the summary. And so all the stuff that's going on, this 4K HD audio visual display God's putting together on the mountain is highlighting like it is a big deal what's about to happen. But not only is the like, audio-visual stuff show us that it's a big deal, also just kind of the, the structure of Moses' writing and the chronology of what's happening here in Exodus shows us that it's a big deal. And so, pop quiz real quick. We talked about this, this code from weeks back. We're going to see how you're doing. I told you you were scholars when you answered this correctly weeks ago. Let's see if you still are or if we you know, need to do some extra work here. The book of Exodus is the second book in a groupings of five books called what? The Pentateuch. And someone gave me the Hebrew, Torah. So Pentateuch means five, right? But then in Hebrew, Torah. Torah literally translates instruction or law. That's what it literally translates as. And so in writing, structurally and chronologically, like how we see what's so important here is like, in Exodus, what's going on here is the people have left Egypt and they have arrived at Mount Sinai in fulfillment of what God promised Moses in Exodus chapter 3. You will come to this mountain and worship. So they've shown up. They're at Mount Sinai. And this is where they will stay for the rest of the book of Exodus. They will not leave this place. They will stay there. And we know that eventually they're going to get to the promised land, but they don't even get to the borders of the promised land till the last book of the Pentateuch the last few chapters of Deuteronomy, they get to the border. They don't go in. It doesn't happen until Joshua, but they get to the border. And so the whole rest of this book here, they're going to stay at Mount Sinai. Now here's what you kind of need to understand. It's an 11-month period that they're going to stay at Mount Sinai. Okay? 
We know they're going to wander for around 40 years, so there's another 39 years of wandering that's about to come. And we get very little description in Scripture of what those wanderings are about in terms of chapters. 39 years, not a whole lot. But these 11 months that they're at Mount Sinai, you know what we get? We get the rest of the book of Exodus, all the book of of Leviticus, and numbers all the way through chapter 10. So engineers, accountant types, to put this in terms you would understand a little bit better, that relates for like one-fortieth of the amount of time that they're in the wilderness do they spend at Mount Sinai. It's 11 months. But the bulk of three entire books of the Bible are spent on this period of time at Mount Sinai highlighting that the law that is going to be given is a big, big, big deal. So that's number two. The law is a big deal. All right? Those are just kind of like some big ideas. But now let's really dive into the meat of of this text. And so number three, here we go. The Old Testament never teaches salvation by works or by the law. The Old Testament never teaches salvation by works or by obedience to the law. And that's what God is having Moses point out in verse 4. He's having him point out, and notice this, that freedom from slavery, deliverance, salvation preceded the giving of the law. Like, you were saved, then the law came. That's, it preceded that. So look at verse 4 with me again. <clears throat> he starts by reminding them of the grace that God has shown them. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now therefore, right, because of that, If you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be to me my treasured possession among all the peoples of the earth, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And so the giving of the law that's going to happen in chapter 20, Ten Commandments, as well as this covenant that's being reconfirmed here, it was all preceded by salvation. They were brought out of Egypt. And so this is super important for you to understand. Never in the Old Testament was salvation by works or by obedience to the law. Never. It is a false understanding to think, well, in the Old Testament, salvation was by works. But then in the New Testament, it's by grace through faith. No, it has always been by grace through faith. That's why it says Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. It's also what this whole period of Exodus is showing. I mean, just think back on like the actual Exodus event. Moses did not show up to the Israelites in Egypt with the Ten Commandments in hand and say, hey, good news, I got ten things here and if you will obey these ten things then you can be let go. Then you can be delivered. If you do these ten things, bam, oppression will be over. Right? That, that's not how it went. How did the Israelites, like what did they do to, to, to have deliverance? Nothing. They did absolutely nothing except 
grumble and complain the whole time God was dragging them out. Oh, why are you in the wilderness? We don't have any food to eat. Bam! Magic bread. I want some water. Rock. Water flows. Someone's like, yeah, Joe, but you've got this verse 5 here. It's got this if-then statement. It sure sounds like there's some type of... You know, it sounds conditional. If you, verse 5, If you obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all the people, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So what's the if-then stuff about? Well, again, we know it absolutely cannot be about salvation. It can't be about salvation. It cannot be, well, if you're obedient, then I'll redeem you out of Egypt. You know why it can't be that? Because they're already out of Egypt. It can't be that. They're already out. They've already been delivered. So it can't mean that. All right, well, Joe, then it must mean that God saves us, but then we keep ourselves in that salvation by obedience. Once again, have you ever read the Old Testament? They do not keep themselves saved by obedience. David's a man after God's own heart. And he at least abuses and has adultery, maybe even rapes, has dude, her husband killed. If you don't want to look at the Old Testament, look at your own life. You keep yourself saved by your obedience. Like if it's up to us to, uh, God saves us and then we've got to perfectly obey the law to have salvation. Listen, no one's going to heaven. Because no one keeps the law perfectly. And so listen to me, we are not saved by works. We are not saved by faith plus works. We are not saved by faith and then keep ourselves in that salvation by works. And yet at the same time, God gives the law here. It's a big, big deal. And so what does Moses mean then with this if-then statement? Well, for one, every covenant relationship has responsibilities. Every single one. You know this. Like if you're married, married and you want to pretend like your covenant doesn't have responsibilities, just go for that, and then we'll do counseling in a couple of weeks. You know this at work. If you don't fulfill it, like you have responsibilities at work. And we, you know this in the church. We have a covenant with one another, and that covenant details responsibilities that we have towards one another. Every relationship has responsibilities, and God is stating those here. But then secondly, in God's economy, every responsibility is a blessing. In God's economy, every responsibility is a blessing. And you look at verse 5 and 6. Part of our responsibilities here are to be a treasured possession. To be a kingdom of priests. To be a holy nation. We have a responsibility to live those things out, but those are a blessing to have them put on us. And so make sure you don't misunderstand. Moses is not saying to the Israelites, keep God's law and He will make you in return a treasured possession, a holy nation, a kingdom of priests. How do we know that? Because they already were that. 
He had already borne them out on eagles' wings. And who's the them? The treasured possession. The holy nation. The kingdom of priests. He's already shown them grace. He's already constituted them as His people. Genesis 12. Reaffirmed Genesis 15. Reaffirmed Genesis 17. Reaffirmed here. He's already embraced them. He's already distinguished them from Egypt and from all the nations. And so Moses is not saying, keep the law and God will make you what you are not yet. He is saying, keep the law and God will make you what you were born to be. What I've already made you to be. Treasured possession. A kingdom of priests. A holy nation. Keep God's wall and you'll be what He made you to be. And somebody says, well, how can that be? How can I be what God made me to be? Ten commandments. Here's how. Here's how you are those things. Exodus chapter 20. Book of Leviticus. Numbers through chapter 10. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not bow down to an idol. You shall not take the Lord's name in vain. You shall remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Honor your mother and father. Here's how you live out what I've made you to be. And so the law then is the expression of how to be what God made us to be. Okay, The law is not the cause of our deliverance. But it is a goal of our deliverance. It's not the cause of our deliverance, but it is a goal of our deliverance. And so, in other words, number four in your notes, the wall reveals the kind of life that pleases God. The wall reveals the kind of life that pleases God. And so Israel's been in slavery. Again, pop quiz, how long were they in slavery in Egypt? 400 years, right? Just comparison-wise... Our country's not yet 250 years old. They were in slavery for 400 years. And so they don't really know a lot about God. They don't have any written word. There's no like priests and stuff. They don't know a whole lot. They had some understanding. I mean, they knew killing babies, chunking them into the river was wrong, right? They knew racism and oppression and slavery was wrong because they were experiencing those things. They understood both of those things. And so, but, but, they, but they don't have a big, real idea of, of what a life pleasing to God looks like. And so God gives them the law and shows them, hey, here's how to live your life. Here's what a life pleasing to me looks like. And this is hard for us. Uh, that's what you know, life pleasing to God looks like. This is, this is how we are to live in response to the grace He's shown me. And it's hard for us because like, we're not good at doing that. And even the people who think that they're good at living at the law are actually absolute failures. Because what they do is they pick something that they're good at, it's not a big struggle for them, and then compare it to someone who has a big struggle with that exact thing, same thing, and they compare themselves to that person, elevate themselves in self-righteousness, and therefore fail. Self-righteousness is one of the chief sins. It's 
And so even people who think they're good at the wall are actually pretty terrible. Like, we're not, we, we don't do this. And so the wall simultaneously shows us what a life that pleases God looks like, but it also crushes us because none of us do it. None of us live it perfectly. No one can. No one can live a life pleasing to God. And so if this is how we're supposed to live, if this is what a life pleasing to God looks like, and none of us do that, well, what's up? Well, that, well that's kind of the point. Like the law exists to show us we aren't good. It, 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 it exists to show us you are a sinner. You need a Savior. The law is a thermometer to show us we're sick, but it can't heal us. We need a healer. Enter Jesus, who lives the perfect life, obeys the law perfectly in your place, and here's where this gets to be really, really, really good news. If you have trusted Jesus, if you have received Him as your Lord and Savior, then you are now, this is Paul's big term for how do you describe salvation, you are now in Christ. Okay? You are in Christ. Your debt, your sin debt has been transferred to Jesus. He has uh, died on the cross, suffered and died. He's atoned for your sin. But that's not all salvation is. He has also, the perfect life that He gave, He has credited to you. He has given you His righteousness. And so now you, in Christ, when God looks at you, it is as if, not as if, He sees you as holy and blameless, not on the basis of any of your righteousness, because you have none, but on the basis of Jesus' righteousness that was given to you. And so it is, you were seen as if you fulfilled the law, though you have it. And then through that lens, that means that as we seek to obey, God sees us as holy and blameless, but as we seek to obey in our bumbling and fumbling and imperfect, two steps forward, one step back pursuit, but totally imperfect pursuit, God is pleased with us. It's like Pastor Chad tells the students all the time. Like, if you are in Christ, since His righteousness is yours, it's about pursuit, not perfection. And so let me give you an example I heard Matt Chandler give that I think really helps us understand this. And it's about when you brought your newborn, if you're a parent, brought your newborn beautiful baby home from the hospital for the very first time. Because when you brought that newborn baby home, beautiful, cute little baby, when you brought that child home into your home, what you did is you brought into your home the most selfish, me-centered, narcissistic individual you have ever been around. It's all me, 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 me. I, 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 right? They never, like they could care less about the day you've had. They never say, oh, you were sleeping? Don't worry about it. Right? That doesn't happen. They never think, you got some things you got to knock out? Okay, just get to me when you can. No big deal. Right? That doesn't happen. Me, 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 I, I, I. Absolutely self-absorbed, self-focused. And here's what I can guarantee you. None of you at 3 a.m. in the morning, bloodshot eyes, were holding that child and thinking, someday I'm going to love it. 
when it can tie it, find its own shoes and hold a fork and not wake me up all night long, when it can give itself a bath, when it can do something productive for my kingdom, little family kingdom, right? When it can do something productive for my kingdom, like none of you said that. You loved that child. You held that child. You loved that child. You were crazy about that child. And when that child started babbling absolutely imperfect words, but it sounded anything like mama or dada, you went crazy. Imperfect. Not even close. But you were proud. And you were pleased. When they drew a picture the first time, it just looks like, like crayon vomit. You loved it. You loved it. You were pleased. And it was not even close to any type of art. Friends, this is a picture of the grace of God towards you. If you have received Jesus, you've been adopted into His family. You are a son or a daughter. And in your imperfect bumbling and fumbling... He, you, you can please Him if you're in Christ because His righteousness, Jesus, is, is yours. Like That's already been taken care of. So now, even in your bumbling and fumbling, you can please God. Even in our imperfect pursuit of obedience. Isn't that good news? Would that be like when you later this week, next week, next month, six months from now, are beaten down with guilt because you gave in to that sin that you swore you would never give in to again, and you did it again, and you are eaten up with, with guilt. God could never love me. Remember this and wrap it around you as a warm blanket. You have the righteousness of Christ credited to you on the basis of nothing you've done. Grace. And now in that, God is pleased with you. Not pleased when you go into that sin, absolutely. But He's not like, well, I love them again when they get cleaned up. Never. You didn't do that with your baby when they pooped all over themselves again. You loved them. Focus far more on understanding the fatherness of God. He loves His children. He doesn't tolerate them. I pray you don't just tolerate your kids. I know sometimes maybe you do, but, and sometimes maybe he does with us, but truly, he loves us. Never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking always and forever. Love. And so God is not in heaven this morning hoping, yep, I hope they do it again, I'll smite them today. He's in heaven this morning saying, I hope they realize how much I love them and that they will trust me enough to follow me. Because I've got, like, my, my law it is a life pleasing to me, but it's also the path of life for them. It is for their joy and for their happiness. God never commands anything that's not for our joy. Period. He only commands that which is ultimately, ultimately, maybe not in the moment it feels like it, ultimately the best for us. And so since the law reveals the kind of life that pleases God, that means, and here comes number five, the redeemed express their redemption through ever-increasing obedience. 
Okay? Imperfect, absolutely. But it is increasing. And the redeemed express their redemption through ever-increasing obedience. Because again, the law is the expression of how to be what God made us to be. All right? It's not the cause of our deliverance, but it is a goal. It is a result of our salvation. It begins with God's grace. That's the foundation. But then there are responsibilities. That's why in verses 4 through 6, you see first grace, then you see a call to some responsibilities. But again, those responsibilities are the pathway to life. And God's commands to obey Him are always for His glory and our good. Always. He's not a tyrant handing out ridiculous commands to subjugate, oppress, frustrate, harm you. That's not what He's doing. That's not who He is. Rather, because God loves you and knows how He set the universe up to work, He wants to bring you in line with that for His glory and your own joy. He knows how He made things to work. And so when you refuse to at least try to obey, what you are doing is robbing yourself of joy and God of glory. And so like, for example, when God says sex works this way and parenting works this way and gender works this way and relationships work this way and uh, finances works this way and on and on and on and on we could go, that's not God trying to rob you of joy, but rather lead you into it. And so when we push back against the command of God, that's you basically saying, listen, God, me and my like not able to get my microwave to stop blinking 12 o'clock brain know better than you do what's best for me. Like, I can't even figure this out, but I know better how to command my life. You're wrong, omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent God. You're outdated. I'm right. That's what you're saying, effectively. And so again, obedience isn't the cause of our salvation, but it absolutely should be a result. I mean, James chapter 2, faith without works is what? Dead. And so friends, listen to me. This is, hard. this is a hard word I'm about to say, but it's absolutely true, and I love you enough to tell you this. If you just prayed a prayer years ago, and you got baptized and you have no desire, no seriousness about coming under the Word as imperfectly bumbling forward as, as you will, but you just have no desire on that, no seriousness about that at all, then God help us, you're not a Christian. I'm not talking about perfection at all. None of us go to heaven, not but a desire, some level of conviction. And it may be years, there, there may be a huge, I know in my own life, there was a huge, there were three years where it's like, God, yep, believe in Jesus, love Jesus, just don't really want to pay attention to Jesus. There may be times of backsliddenness. There may be gaps, but when you look across your life, 
there should be an upward trend. And it may have giant little chasms, little downfalls, but if you, you know, plot the statistical line on that, there should be an upward trajectory across your life. Like I've been a Christian for about 35 years now. And I can look back and I am not what the Lord wants me to be, but I'm not what I once was either. There is a trajectory. Can you see that in your life? We should be able to. We should be able to. And so if you, if you like, have no desire, you just prayed a prayer, got baptized, listen, you're not a Christian, you may be a social conservative, you may be found a place to come hang out once in a while when you don't have a better plan. You may be a moralistic, therapeutic deist, but you're not a Christian. Those whom God redeems, He brings, eventually at least, under His law. Eventually, there's a conviction of sin because we are His treasured possession and He won't let us go. He will pebble in your shoe, bother you. Until you repent, He's open your eyes. Those whom God redeems express that redemption through ever-increasing obedience for His glory and our good and joy. And so it's essential that we remember these things about God. And so let us remember that communing with Him is serious business. It's not flippancy. Remember that the law is a big deal, but the Old Testament never, ever, ever teaches that salvation comes by obedience to the law. It's always been by grace through faith. And so the law reveals the kind of life that pleases God, and it shows us we fall short of that. We need a Savior. And therefore, once salvation comes, come salvation first and then that leads us to the law which becomes for us the pathway of life and the redeemed express the redemption through imperfect stumbling forward but nevertheless ever increasing obedience remember and live these things to the praise of his glorious grace let's pray Lord, we bless You, praise You, thank You that salvation is not dependent upon us. It is accomplished wholly and fully by the shed blood of Jesus, preceded by His perfect life, and followed by His glorious resurrection. It is accomplished. Jesus paid it all. And we praise You, Lord, that in the midst of our struggle with sin, ongoing, though we have been freed from the penalty and we are uh, released from the power, but so often we give right back into it, in our ongoing struggle with sin, it, yes, they are many, but Your mercy is more. Your love is greater. Your forgiveness is sweeter and new. Your mercies are new every morning, like the dew. And so, Father, sink these truths into our hearts and then help us, Lord, to trust You 
and follow you. To not give in to our sin, give in to I'm gonna take a I'm gonna take a, a night off from obeying God, from following God. Help us to trust you and follow. Because you know best. And in those moments when we despair of life because of our sin, wrap us in the warm blanket that is we are in Christ. And His righteousness has been given to us by grace through faith. And so we praise you, God. Your goodness is almost, it seems too good to be true, except it is. There's an empty tomb that guarantees it. And so we bless you and praise you and thank you. In Christ's name, amen.